0: Physics world.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, we learn about a new type of artificial skin that's designed to attract mosquitoes. And we chat about a curious binary star system that will someday explode and blast gold and platinum into the cosmos. But first, I meet a former physicist who helps others boost their creativity. Very few people would argue that creativity does not play an important role in a successful scientific career. But what exactly do we mean by creativity, and how can scientists become more creative? To explore the idea of creativity, I'm joined down the line from Rutland by the consultant and author Dennis Sherwood. Once a physicist, Dennis runs Silver Bullet Machine – which helps companies solve problems, generate and implement new ideas, and grasp new opportunities. He's also written the book, Creativity for Scientists and Engineers, A Practical Guide. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the podcast. Hi,
2: Hamish, and thanks for inviting me along. Good to talk to you.
1: So first things first, Dennis, and I think this might be the the most difficult question I'll ask, how do you define creativity in physics and more broadly in science? I think it's one of those things that we know it when we see it, but if we were asked to define it, I would certainly struggle.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, how do you actually make it happen even more so? Uh, And you're right. um, That question, what is creativity, um, has kept philosophers busy for, you know, centuries. Um, So, in many ways, it is a a difficult question. But you know, I approach it very, very simply. Um, To me, uh, creativity is having an idea. You know, it's as complex and as simple as that, having an idea. Um, An idea, of course, is something imaginary. Um, It happens within one's own head. It's a sort of vision, if you like, of a future, a future that doesn't exist now. It can be a very modest future. It could be a very, very big future. But it's something a bit imaginary. It happens, it's localized within the individual's brain. And it really is as simple as that, in my view. And I think making it that simple makes it really quite accessible. Um, I'll build on that, you know, as I'm sure we go through the conversation. But Just having an idea is what it's all about. So whenever you do have an idea, I believe you are being creative. And of course, that's enormously valuable and pervades everything that a physicist does. It pervades everything a scientist does, but it pervades a lot of other things as well.
1: Oh, that's interesting, Dennis, because I I suppose as I get sort of older and (laughs) maybe more cynical, maybe wiser, I... I, I I suppose my view is that it's often the case that ideas are perhaps easy to come by and the the creative bit at least in my view is is actually making it work do you do you separate out the the, the sort of eureka moment from the the creativity that's involved in, in in getting getting something to happen making it making it work
2: Yeah and um, there, there's a real distinction between. Creativity, which is having the idea in the first place, and I use the word innovation for making that idea real. So I might have a fantastic idea for the better mousetrap, metaphorically, or you know, the the light bulb or whatever. I'll get excited about that, and I'll drive my wife mad in in talking about it. But until that better mousetrap is out there working, or until the light bulb works, it's just an idea in my head. So to my mind, creativity is step one in a four-step process. Um, The second step is evaluation. You know, does that idea have any kind of legs and is it worth spending certainly time, certainly emotional energy and probably money too and other resources on stage three, which is development. And development is solving all of the problems to make it work. And when it does, the fourth step is the implementation getting it out of there in the marketplace. Now, interestingly, creativity, having ideas, is embedded in each of those. And one of the great examples, of course, is the light bulb itself. Um, I think the first observation that the passage of electricity causes a light effect goes way, way back into the 1700s. Um, Humphrey Davy in 1802 was the first person to get a platinum wire connected to a battery and it glowed white hot and gave visible light that you could read by. But it wasn't until about seventy, eighty years later that the first actual light bulb that worked was patented and put on the market. So in those 70 years, we were addressing all of the problems that you mentioned, making the fundamental idea work, and all sorts of creativity was needed within that, like the creativity to design a vacuum pump so that you could extract oxygen and air from the envelope so the filament wouldn't burn up. So the whole process is embedded in itself. But to go start to finish, creativity wise evaluation, development, implementation, and creativity itself is embedded in each of those four steps, and it can take a long time.
1: And Dennis, in your book, um, you look at some specific examples of creativity and physics. Um, could, could you uh, could you talk a bit about those?
2: Yeah, I, I'd love to do that, but I'd like to do that in two ways, if you like. One is some specific examples I'll deal with later, but generally, where would a physicist you know, use and benefit from creativity all over the place. Let me just mention some. Clearly, a research physicist needs the idea for the research project, usually a big idea to get a grant or to persuade, you know, a a company to, to finance it. You're then into the actual work itself, and that needs ideas, as we just discussed, to solve all the gazillion problems that come along the way. And, of course, that is the most obvious application area, if you like, of creativity. But let me mention some more. If you're a physics teacher, creativity is enormously valuable in thinking of, you know, more exciting ways to put complex concepts across. And that's creative too. Um, If you're building a team, how can you be creative in making that team work? And creativity is also something that you need to do and I need to do inside my own head. Uh, An example, um, I'm rather shy, naturally. And when I go to conferences, I'm very happy to stand there by myself, just having a glass of wine and actually not talking to anyone. I don't mind that. I've got used to that. But I know that one of the reasons for going to a conference is to network and to meet people. But I was too shy for so many years to go up to someone and say, uh, hi, Hamish, I'm Dennis. I just couldn't do it. So I needed to have the idea in my head that I should do that. I needed to evaluate that idea and come to terms that I should try it. I need to try it out and risk getting punched on the nose. And then I can implement it because all I recognize that if I actually do go to you and say, hi, Hamish, my name's Dennis, you know, I'm from wherever I was, you know, I'm enjoying the conference, how is it? Most people are pretty civil and answer nicely, and all those fears that I had of rejection and all of that go away. So there, you've got creativity from, you know, the big research project to my own behaviours, and it's the same thing. It's having ideas, it's having the courage to evaluate them and do it, and then it's making them real. But of course, you know, in physics for real, you know, physics is just just full of this stuff. Um, You know, from Aristotle uh, So Archimedes, not Aristotle, Um, Archimedes. You know, Archimedes had the problem of determining is this stuff, you know, base metal or is it gold? And he had to have an idea of how to solve that problem. Um, He understood presumably the concept of density, and he could measure the weight, but the problem was, how do you measure the volume of that abstract object? And that was a problem that he was wrestling with. And then he noticed when he got into the bath, the displacement of the water, and he said, ah, there's an idea there. Maybe the water displaced equals the volume of immersion. And he was able to solve the problem. Kepler, you know, what creativity Kepler showed in getting brass data and discovering elliptical orbits and creativity of such magnitude that he had to throw all his preconceptions away. He believed in circular orbits. He was trying to prove a circular orbit. and When he failed to do that, he said, must be something else. What about an ellipse? And an ellipse worked. And then, of course, right through to the present day and every Nobel Prize you can think of. So, you know, creativity is in our everyday lives and most
1: of us love it. So those are some excellent examples of how creativity can play a vital role in physics, Dennis. But, but when a physicist recognizes that being creative would be really helpful, how do ideas actually happen? Is it just a matter of luck or, you know, in the case of Archimedes, we assume it was luck or inspiration? Um, yeah, it, it
2: certainly can be luck. Um, you know, luck is great and rejoice when it happens, but you can't actually rely on luck when you need an idea now, or you've got to get that research proposal in, uh, or you've got to write your PhD thesis. And so the big prize is how to make creativity deliberate, something that I can set about and do now. Now, that's a real potential dilemma because there's a very widespread belief that it is about intuition. What is that? What is that? or it's about the lightning strike, or you go for a long walk, as Einstein did, and suddenly, you know, the light bulb flashes. And um, those things can all happen. But actually, there's a much, much better way of doing it, a way to make idea generation deliberate and systematic. And um, I read a, a lot about this stuff. And that Definition of creativity I had, creativity is having an idea, um, actually is insufficient uh, basis. We need something a bit stronger. And there's something stronger out there. Um, There's a guy called Arthur Koestler, who was a bit of a polymath, um, you know, in the the uh, mid-1900s. He wrote a fantastic set of books, one of which is called The Act of Creation, And in the act of creation, he is studying what creativity is in a really, really deep intellectual way. And I read that and I was bowled over because there was a statement in there that said the act of creation is not the act of the Old Testament God. It does not create something out of nothing. Rather, it synthesizes and recombines and shuffles together already existing facts faculties, skills, knowledge, to form a new pattern. And sometimes that pattern is wonderfully surprising. Now, that's a really powerful statement, and it meant a lot to me because it said, actually, that eureka moment out of the blue is not what actually happens. It may look like that at the end. But what actually is happening is to take already existing facts, faculties, elements, components, and mix them together in different ways. Now, as soon as I read that and thought about it, that made creativity something that you can set out to do. Because what Kersler is saying is that creativity is a bit like playing with Lego bricks. You can put the Lego bricks together in all sorts of different patterns, and some patterns are better than others. Now, The easiest example of that is music. Beethoven didn't invent any of the notes. He didn't invent the musical instruments. He didn't invent the rules of grammar of music, major and minor scales. Those were the already existing elements with which he could recombine wonderful patterns. So that's what Beethoven actually did. He took the existing elements recombine them and made symphonies and all his wonderful music. And that's what every musician does. That's what every physicist does too, because every physicist takes things that already exist, recombines them into new patterns. And when some new knowledge comes along, I can bring that into the mix too and go further. And in that process, sometimes I have to deconstruct an already existing pattern to reveal the elements. It's as if I didn't have the notes, I've just got the symphony, I have to break it apart to the notes, throw a few notes away, bring some new notes in, I've got the new pattern. And of course, this is absolutely the heart of much physics. I mentioned Kepler. Kepler had to deconstruct his belief in circles and circular orbits, throw that away and say, how can I explain the data using something else I know, a closed curve like an ellipse? And he established that truth. Newton, of course, is famous for saying, standing on the shoulders of giants, which is acknowledging the component parts which he brought together, Kepler, Descartes, Galileo, Really interesting example with um, gen- with special relativity. You know, the great Einstein paper of 1905 is famous for having no references at all. Um, he mentions the name of Lorentz. He mentions James Clark, Maxwell. And he also mentions a friend called Michaela Besso. But there are no formal references in the paper. It's as if that was a real bolt from the blue in Einstein's mind. But actually, you know, as everyone knows, if you look around a bit, Many of the key concepts that Einstein weaved together in special relativity had been around for some time. The Lorentz transformation was first identified in a particular form when Einstein was eight years old by Voldemort Voigt. Um, People like Joseph Lama, um, people like Poincaré had identified all sorts of concepts about relativity which Einstein brought together. So this process of deconstructing what you know, looking around, seeking new formations of new patterns is absolutely key. And in the book, um, one of the chapters in the book has been great because there are um, 13 stories written by contemporary physicists and engineers who have told their own stories of how they've made this happen. And there's some great stories in there. Let me just mention one. Um, New patterns of existing things, making things different. Um, Professor Miles Padgett in the University of Glasgow tells a story about cameras, digital cameras. Now, conventional digital cameras have got um, millions of pixels or whatever to get high resolution. That's the way a digital camera works. Well, let's deconstruct that and let's... Think how that might be different. Let's change that, force a new pattern. Which raises the question of, can you imagine a camera with only a single pixel? Don't be silly, it can't work. That's why I need the millions. Well, maybe we could make it work. Supposing the camera scanned, recording one pixel at a time, stored that information, enabling it to be recombined to form the image. And actually that idea is very, very similar to the original TV cameras way back when, when Loki Baird was experimenting. So that kind of concept is not new. What Miles Padgett and his team in Glasgow did was to make that real, getting the electronics right, getting the lasers right, getting the computing right, the algorithms right, and has used that method to get really, really good images from a single pixel. And that's one of the stories in chapter 13 of the book. So this process of saying, let's take what we know, let's deconstruct it, let's ask that fundamental question, how might this be different, see where that leads, is a wonderful technique for making creativity actually happen. And the book is just stuffed full of examples of that.
1: But I think a problem for a lot of people, not just scientists or physicists, is... um Actually, doing it, you know, it can be very difficult to, to be creative. What, what are some of the, the barriers to creativity that, uh, that scientists face? And, and do you have any tips for overcoming them?
2: Yeah. And once again, uh, Hamish, you're dead right. It's not a question of, you know, scientists or physicists. Um, my work is across the piece. I do a lot of work, and it's great to work with uh, academic scientific communities. But I do a lot of work with kind of commercial managers or people in the health service or whatever. Um, there are a, a number of barriers that are, are worth thinking about. The, the first barrier is just not understanding the fundamentals of creativity in the first place. If people haven't come across what I call Kersler's Law, that statement about recombining existing elements... People are actually looking in the wrong place, so they don't actually know how to go about it. And indeed, a lot of people believe that creativity is about discovering something new. Well, it's very hard to know what new is, especially if you're young. If you're in a meeting and someone says, "We want a new idea, Hamish, a new idea, Dennis, I sit there petrified because I'm scared to open my mouth in case what I say, someone leans forward and says, hey, Dennis, we had that idea last year. We know you weren't here then. Um, Let's move on. So I'm not going to go there. I'll shut up. So new ideas don't go there. Something which is different about now, that's the place to go. The key question is, how might this be different? So there's just knowledge of process there. You've then got a host of behaviours that can really get in the way. Um, One of the biggest barriers is the unwillingness to deconstruct existing knowledge, or to have someone else deconstruct my knowledge, especially if I'm senior. And the history of science is full of people who came up with novel concepts which were just counter to the established wisdom, and the hierarchs, the people in authority, said don't be stupid, when actually they were just unwilling to unlearn. So don't be precious about your knowledge. Your knowledge is the way things are right now. New knowledge is different, so don't worry about throwing existing knowledge away or have other people question it. You think of all sorts of things about you know, how interpersonal behaviour works. So, for example, one of my you know things that I notice a lot, it happened to me when I was a PhD student, you're having... Uh, some kind of discussion maybe it's a workshop about ideas and someone says to me as a phd student or whatever dennis what ideas have you got now if i'm stuck on my phd or if i'm in a meeting actually i feel quite embarrassed by that question i'm stuck on my project because i don't have any ideas so someone asking me what ideas have i got just makes me feel even smaller It's a very natural question and no one asks it maliciously. It's just the wrong question. The right question is something like, tell me what assumptions you are making. Let's probe into those assumptions, see what could be different about them, because that will take you to a different place. So I'm being helped to have ideas. Now, all of these things are very straightforward. Um, They don't have to be malicious. Sometimes they are. They're usually thoughtless. But there's a lot of things that everyone can do in their environment to make it an environment where creativity flourishes. And indeed, you know, there's a couple of chapters in the book which specifically talk about that because those are rarely addressed in academic communities. And the word culture is a flabby, amorphous word, doesn't mean anything. But actually, we've all had experiences where somehow or other in this environment, it kind of works and in that environment, it doesn't. So if you're running a team or running a lab and you want creativity to flourish, that's where you need to
1: be creative in creating the conditions where that happens. So, Dennis, over the past few decades, scientists and I suppose people in general have had access to a, a growing number of, of tools um, that they can use to to. I suppose, be be more creative. There's, uh, I suppose, first there were computers and then we had the internet, which provides a vast amount of information. And now we've got artificial intelligence systems like chatbots. Do do you think that, that all of this technology is making people more creative or is it making people creative in a different way? Or is creativity a conserved quantity? In, in humanity and uh, m- maybe people are just doing things differently now
2: yeah um, that's a very rich question because there are all sorts of things going on and pressures on people um, which may or may not influence their creativity. I just talked about organizational cultures um, well they tend to be local but if you take the um, granting system or the ref which are kind of bigger than you know we are, um, those have an enormous influence. If in fact uh, you know I'm a postdoc and I'm going to get um, a position on the faculty because I publish umpteen papers, and I won't if I don't, then I will be motivated very, very strongly to get those papers out, and that means I will tend to play safe. And creativity is inevitably risky because I don't know what the outcome is. So those kind of pressures of the organisation for uh, promotion, for getting grants. Squeeze creativity out, and indeed, there's there's a story here. The EPSRC, which many of the community watching this will be funded by, um, I am told, recognised that there was, um, you know, people were perhaps playing safe in their research grants. And uh, ten or a dozen years ago, um, I'm told they got a community together to say, how can we address this? And that community, one of their recommendations was that the EPSRC should create a grant program where people like me could work with academic teams on the program they call Creativity at Home. Um, I'm a preferred supplier for that, and over the last 10 years, I've done lots of great assignments uh, around that. And that was a deliberate attempt by EPSRC to influence scientists to be a bit bolder to be a bit more creative and to help them do that. Now, that was a good thing to do, but, you know, the ref is still there. Um, So those are perhaps, um, you know, pressures which are restricting it. The opportunity is driven by Kersler's law. Kersler's law says that creativity is a combination of things that already exist. So the more things that already exist the more possible combinations there are. So creativity should increase with the knowledge base. The more knowledge you have, the more creative you can be. And that is why creativity of teams is much, much more effective than the creativity of an individual. I know so much. So those are the musical notes, if you like, that I can recombine. If I'm talking to you, Hamish, we can compare our musical note repertoire will have a greater shared repertoire which opens the opportunity for more creativity and of course something like the internet just blows that so far open um, which actually creates the problem of how do I find those bits well you have to search you have to be you know a bit wise about it so all of those things should enrich creativity because there is more raw material to be creative with. And, um, you know, uh, some aspects of creativity absolutely now are being taken over by AI. Um, music, for example, is probably the first to go. And there are already many programs that can create music which is as listenable to as certainly a pop song, if not quite yet a Beethoven symphony. Um We'll then have to use that in a rather different way. But I will make one important distinction, which I really believe in, where chat, GPT or whatever it is, is never going to go. It's all very well to use AI to discover a credible new pattern of notes of music or of words in a student essay or of component parts for a new product or indeed bits of physics to throw together. But if we say that the richest creativity, I certainly believe, is the power to change my mind. I talked about what I had to do to overcome my shyness. No AI agent is ever going to replace that. That will always be there in all of our brains.
1: And I just wanted to chat a bit about the motivation for writing your book. Um, did, did, did you? Is it the result of you seeing a problem? within science and, and scientists and, and how they, they viewed creativity. Um, is that why you, you wrote the book? Be, be, um, because you identified a problem or a gap in, in how things were being done? Um, no, um, it,
2: it wasn't a problem to solve. And indeed, one of the things I say about creativity is that creativity is not simply about having problems to solve. Um, If you've got a problem to solve, sure, you need to be creative. But creativity is making the world a better place, even if the world is pretty good now. Um, The motivation from the book came from kind of three angles, to be honest. Um, One is I am an evangelist about this stuff. I believe in it. I enjoy talking about it. I wish to share it with others. And indeed, I've written other books on creativity for sort of management type audiences. Um, I mentioned the EPSRC's Creativity at Home grant, and that has given me access over the last ten years to lots of great scientific teams, and it's been really good to work with them. And now, as people are putting in their um, bids for uh, doctoral training centres, Creativity at Home can be um, embedded in that. And I've done a lot of work at CDTs too. So there's a body of knowledge that is worth sharing with a community. Um, but I must pay tribute here to uh, Professor Mervyn Miles of, of Bristol. Um, I met uh, Mervyn on one of the early Creativity at Home uh, projects, and we've been in touch ever since. And I was talking to Miles, and he said, well, why don't you write a book about it? And he said, well, the Institute of Physics could well be interested in publishing it. So he was the catalyst that all those things together and there was quite a long gestation time in that because i was pretty busy but there we were on the lockdown and um, i was based at home yeah i had things to do but i thought well here's an opportunity and um, i put the book together it's got lots of examples from creativity at home it's got lots of historic examples as well as you know the how to do it bit and through uh, mervyn miles's generous introduction um I met people at um, Institute of Physics Publishing and the book came out uh, just
1: uh, in uh, the autumn of last year. And if, if a scientist, a physicist were to read your book, what, what would you hope that, that they came away with? What, what would the benefit to them be? Okay, um, there are lots of stories of, of history,
2: um, you know, like the Kepler story, like the light bulb, um, and I, I find those quite fascinating to see what happened in the past. So hopefully that's fun. Um, but also embedded in the book is the processes, processes for idea generation that really work processes for the wise evaluation of ideas. Is it a good one? Is it a poor one? And those are tools and techniques that I really do hope people would be able to use themselves so that they can enrich their own personal and their team's creativity. And the last chapters of the books, the last two, as I mentioned, are about building the culture. And it talks about performance measures, it talks about language, it talks about physical layout, for example. So people who are running teams, perhaps, or really want to do something, you know, to make creativity happen, hopefully that, uh, well, that part of the book contains some very pragmatic and sensible guidance as to how to do that. So entertainment and knowledge and joy in the history, learning some processes and actually having things that people can really take away. That would be my magic dream of how the book is, uh, is read.
1: Well, that's great, Dennis. Uh, And and the book is called Creativity for Scientists and Engineers, A Practical Guide. And that is brought to you by IOP Publishing, which also produces the Physics World Weekly Podcast. Thanks so much for for joining me, Dennis. This has been a a fascinating uh, conversation. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Now, I'm joined by my Physics World colleague, Tammy Freeman, to chat about what's new in the world of physics research. Hi, Tammy. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Hamish.
1: So, Tammy, this, this week you reported on a new way to examine mosquito feeding behavior. Why, why are scientists interested in learning more about how mosquitoes feed?
0: So mosquitoes are often described as the world's most dangerous animal. Uh, And this is because they carry pathogens that cause deadly diseases, such as malaria, Zika, yellow fever. And while feeding on people's blood through their skin, they transmit these pathogens and spread illnesses that affect millions of people around the world. Now, because mosquitoes spread disease when they bite, studying their feeding behaviour in a controlled environment could help us discover ways to stop them from biting and create measures to lower disease transmission. And such feeding studies could also help us develop new mosquito repellents. So DEET, which was introduced back in the 1940s, is still considered the gold standard. But several research groups are investigating alternative types of repellent and they're using these feeding studies to do that.
1: Yeah, I have to say that you know, as somebody who's lived in uh, mosquito-infested parts of Canada, DEET is is definitely a godsend. It's sort of a it's a horrible chemical, but it it really seems to work, and um, and I, I can actually remember an advert on the TV years ago. Um, where they showed how DEET was tested. And basically some poor soul put their hand into a box full of mosquitoes to see um, if the mosquitoes bit them. And I'm guessing, is that how feeding studies are currently done with mosquitoes? Does some poor sod basically get bitten?
0: Exactly. So most experiments with mosquitoes still rely on animals such as mice, or as you say, human volunteers as the food source. Uh, And this is obviously not ideal, apart from the need to find willing volunteers. Live subject testing can be expensive, inconsistent, and it can also be quite slow to get results.
1: And and so what can scientists do instead of of having these live, biting uh, observations?
0: Well, in this new study, researchers at Rice University and Tulane University in the US, they've developed a biomaterial-based platform that could be used for the feeding tests instead. So, central to this new platform is a synthetic skin made from hydrogel. And the researchers 3D printed patches of this hydrogel with tiny vessels inside or passageways that can be filled with blood or other liquids. Now, for the mosquito feeding tests, up to six of these synthetic skin patches are housed within a glass box. And then once the mosquitoes are placed in the box, they'll feed on the blood in the patches. And cameras inside the box record the insects' landing locations and their feeding patterns. Now, a really important feature of this particular study is that the researchers developed a machine learning model to analyse the insects' feeding behaviour. And they trained the model on an initial set of recordings And after which, it could successfully differentiate mosquitoes that had fed from the hive shells from those that had not. And the researchers point out that this automated approach can analyse data from much larger numbers of mosquitoes far more quickly and consistently than a human could.
1: And so how did the team put this new platform to use? How did they use it to study mosquitoes?
0: They performed a couple of different tests. So first of all, they exposed mosquitoes to hydrogels filled with either blood, red ink, or saline. And they found that the insects only fed on the hydrogels containing blood. So this experiment confirmed that the hydrogels don't inherently attract the mosquitoes, but they are indeed attracted to the blood itself. Um, And they also used the feeding platform to evaluate two existing repellents, DEET, and a plant-based repellent made from lemon eucalyptus oil. So, in hydrogels coated with either of the repellents, none of the mosquitoes fed on the blood, while mosquitoes in the control setup continued to feed. So, I mean, this we know that these repellents work. This is just a way of showing that the platform um, is a good way of testing them.
1: And so, this work was done in the lab. Um... Uh, I think H- Houston is essentially in a in a big swamp, isn't it? Where these universities are, so have these have these researchers take the, taken their system out into the wild to study mosquitoes?
0: Well, th- this is a really interesting question because wild mosquitoes often exhibit different feeding habits to laboratory mosquito strains. So, yes, yeah, such studies might more accurately represent the behavior of um, disease spreading mosquitoes. Now, this particular system, they haven't actually tested it in the wild yet, but um, they note that it it could indeed be deployed in the field. Um, There's several challenges to doing this, but they think they could um, overcome these. For example, um, using car batteries as a mobile power source, which is an approach used in existing mosquito traps. And they suggest various other ways that they could adapt the platform for field use. Um, And the other thing is that, First author Kevin Janssen from Rice also suggests that because these hydrogels can be produced at scale and at low cost, the platform could be adapted to support really high throughput testing and alleviate bottlenecks in bringing new repellents to the market.
1: Oh, that's really interesting, Tammy. I'm sure that that, that there's... Probably billions of people on this planet who would really benefit from a better understanding of mosquitoes. And um, it sounds like this new feeding platform uh, will help with that. You can read Tammy's article about synthetic skin on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Synthetic Skin Removes the Need for Human Volunteers in Mosquito Bite Trials. So, Hamish...
0: You have a story to tell about the complex interactions between stars that eventually lead to a kilonova explosion. Now, what's a kilonova explosion?
1: Well, a kilonova explosion is when two neutron stars in a binary system merge. And this creates a huge bang that astronomers believe is responsible for creating some of the heavy elements in the universe. So these are elements such as gold and platinum. And kilonovas, they first really hit the news in 2017 when gravitational waves and light from a kilonova were spotted uh, for the first time in what was a triumph of astronomy. And so that's what a a kilonova is, a big explosion that produces uh, many of the heavy elements that make up the Earth and indeed our, our bodies as well.
0: But in this case, astronomers have seen a system that they believe will eventually explode as a kilonova.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so for the first time, um, astronomers have spotted a system that they think someday, and, and when I say someday, I think it's going to be in billions of years, will explode as, as a kilonova. And today, the system comprises a neutron star that's orbiting a massive star. So it's a binary system. The neutron star is sucking material away from the massive star, and what this means or at least what astronomers think is that this massive star will someday explode as an ultra stripped supernova and become a neutron star so at some point this will become a binary neutron star system
0: Okay um an ultra stripped supernova what what's that
1: I think it's 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 something that happens when a star has a lot of its material stripped away from it and then explodes uh, in a supernova. And it's a relatively gentle explosion that's not powerful enough to blow apart a binary system. So when this happens, um, you know, to the system that, that's just been discovered, the result will be a pair of neutron stars. And these neutron stars will get closer and closer together over billions of years and then explode as a kilonova.
0: But that's only half the story.
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting sort of back and forth that astronomers think happened in this system to get it to where it is today. Um, So... the reason, I suppose, astronomers got the clue that, that this was an interesting system from the fact that the these two objects have a circular orbit. And that allowed them to sort of piece together this story. And it, it's sort of a familiar story. They believe that the system began as two massive stars with one star stripping material from the other. And then the star that's, that was being stripped exploded in an ultra-stripped supernova to create the neutron star that exists today. So it looks like the two stars are doing an elaborate dance that involves matter being shifted back and forth between the two objects, with both objects at some point undergoing an ultra-stripped supernova explosion.
0: Wow, I mean, that sounds like a pretty rare series of events. Does this happen often?
1: Well, probably not. Astronomers believe that there's only 10 such kilonova progenitor systems amongst the 100 billion or so stars in the Milky Way. So the the kilonova explosions that make elements like gold and platinum are very rare indeed. And so, you know, it looks like uh, these researchers were very lucky in being able to spot this system. You can find more about this amazing stellar system in an article on the Physics World website, and that was written by Rob Lee. Just look for the headline, Doomed to Explode in a Kilonova, Rare Star System is Discovered by Astronomers. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tammy.
0: That's fine, Hamish.
1: I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Dennis Sherwood and Tammy Freeman for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I chat with three scientists who are using machine learning to search for signs of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Physics World